Let us hear now from God's word. Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 23. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for, year, for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely, and the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your, your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if it may not sow or gather a crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Would you remain standing as we just pray? Father, we uh, continue in um, this journey to know you more profoundly. And so by your spirit, we would ask that you would illumine these ancient words, that we would understand them to be beautiful and for our good. We need you, and so we offer this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, um, good morning, fam. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie, I'm one of the pastors here. So we, um, we've embarked on this strange and mysterious section of your Bible, right? The book of Leviticus. And the reason why we're doing this, you're like, well, you know, what are we doing here, right? Whose idea was it to do the sermon series? Um, I know a guy. Uh, <clears throat> I think that this is like really relevant for modern uh, admittedly, it takes a little bit of work because the original audience was a bunch of like formerly freed Jewish slaves marching through the Sinai Peninsula following a pillar of fire and smoke. Now, um, if you have this instinct to think that you have like nothing in common with that group of people, let me suggest that if you could just look past the fact that uh, you're glued to your smartphone and they weren't, uh, I actually think we have a ton in common with them, and here's why. 
one of the main questions that this group of Jews had was this. What is freedom? How do we become free? So for 400 years, right, they're slaves in Egypt. For as many generations of grandparents as they could remember, they were all slaves. The only script that they have for life is a history of oppression and bondage. Now, I can tell you, with no hesitation, our concept, modern people, of freedom is perhaps the most politically sensitive topic in our modern world. It can account for almost every politically correct or politically incorrect thing that you're going to find on social media. Competing notions of freedom, just like those freed Jewish slaves in the Sinai Peninsula of 1,400 years are at stake. We are all interested in this, uh, this topic of freedom. In our society, in our, our, our universities, right, we, we learn that we are actually still enslaved, um, that we should seek liberation. And so when we seek to express ourselves, when we are true to ourselves, when we're authentic to what's in our heart, it's in those moments that we're experiencing freedom, so we're told. Right? Presently, our culture, our society is persuaded that when we live lives free of social expectations or unconstrained by social conventions or cultural norms or even uh, on occasion free from our biology, which are all allegedly tools of slavery, then in doing so, we are becoming free. We are a people who are desperately interested in this conversation of freedom. And we are right to be concerned with freedom. But as what we're going to learn today in this text in Leviticus, freedom is realized or achieved in very counterintuitive ways. I mean, just think about this for a second as we get started. The Jewish slaves were freed by God from Egypt— Right? And then they come out of that. They're in the Sinai Peninsula. God greets them, celebrates their freedom. How? By giving them a whole bunch of rules. <laughs> what? Like, aren't rules the tools of the slave master? Because I thought rules were the exact opposite of freedom. Right? I mean, who does that? What is God up to? God knew that the only vision of reality, the only script that Israel knew was the script of slave master and slave. And so God has taken this homeless group of farmers into this promised land as free people. But as soon as they get there, he knows that they're going to employ the only script that they know. Although they are free people, their learned behavior from Egypt will take over, and it's only a matter of time until they will become the slave masters. History shows us how this works, right? The proletariat revolts against the bourgeoisie. When they get into power, they are as brutal or more so than their former slave masters, right? That's history. It's the only script they knew. And so we're going to see today how God says, it's not going to happen with you. So God looks at Israel and he says, when you get 
to the land as free people, I have some rules. And these rules have everything to do with true freedom. And it's called the year of Jubilee. So God's going to use Jubilee to teach us all how to be free. So with that, let's just jump right into, I have two points. Here's my first point. So this passage, Leviticus 25, it's instituting the year of Jubilee. And the first lesson we learn in freedom is one of identity. This Jubilee legislation confronts the Israelites with this question. When you get to the land, are you an owner or are you a guest? When you get to the land, are you an owner or are you a guest? Let me illustrate why this is a profound question. You know, a couple years ago, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really long ago now, the, um, the Syrian civil war, y'all remember? It was awful. Lots of innocent people uh, were put in a really tough position. It created a, a huge refugee crisis. Upwards of like six million Syrians were displaced. And so many of them found themselves going, uh, being relocated in various countries in Europe. Most of the countries in Europe were completely unprepared for this upsurge. And so what these countries did is they set up these refugee camps. Basically, they just designated land that was parceled out. Camps, shelters were sort of uh, established. It wasn't great. There's food, uh, water. There's basic sanitation systems. And at first, these good people, these displaced refugees were thankful for the hospitality. They were gracious guests. But over time, something changed. And the NGOs that are helping report a phenomena, gangs within the camp began to form among these refugees. Certain refugees began to prey upon others, their own people. And then for self-protection, even more gangs had to be created, right? So now there's these bands. We're talking like Lord of the Flies type level here. In a matter of no time at all, all out turf wars in these camps had, be had begun composed of people fighting for what they believed to be rightfully theirs. Now when these refugees saw themselves as guests, there was relative peace. But when they saw themselves as owners, they became perpetually vigilant, no rest, always trying to protect their stuff or maybe gain more. That's actually what happens in the Garden of Eden, by the way, Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve understood themselves as guests in God's garden, there's peace, rest, shalom. The moment they became presumptuous, they acted like gangsters, and it enslaved them. And of course, they were exiled and kicked out of the garden. Now in our text, Israel is again confronted with this question of self-understanding. Are you a guest or an owner? Because think about the context of Leviticus, okay? Israel had just been released 400 years of physical and financial slavery. I mean, they had nothing. They couldn't produce anything. And God is inviting them to be the, the, the guest of honor on and in his land. But remember, they only have one script for how to do life, either a slave or slave master. You gotta be one or the other. So God says, as you go into this land, in this free economy, you're gonna be tempted to work in ways that exploits others. Don't do that. 
And I'm going to help you by instituting a way of doing life there. Now think about this with me for a second. Because Israel is this agrarian society. All right, this isn't the Rust Belt, right? Land was everything. Land was your means for making money. You plant, harvest, sell, trade. Or in some cases, an Israelite could lease some land for grazing animals. But here's the deal. If you had land, you had money because it could be monetized. But what happens? But what happens if a drought came or a swarm of sweet-looking ladybugs take over and your crop fails? And what happens if this happened for several years consecutively such that your land isn't even good for grazing animals? If that happened, then you're broke and you can't even feed yourself. And in this case, what you did is you started selling off your land. So in verses 14 through 17, all those verses right there, that is described, God is actually regulating the price for land based on the Jubilee year. And so if a day came and you've, now you've done that over and over again, you sold off all of your land, what do you have left? Now all you have is yourself. In this case, a Jew could indenture himself to someone. So you work for food. All right, just real quick, this isn't chattel slavery, right, which includes like man-stealing, which was like strictly forbidden in Israel. This was a willing indenture. But here's the thing. After a few cycles of this, the very fabric of Israeli society started to decay. Soon, entire families and clans are falling into extended financial depression. And so, too, their identities evolved from where they started. At first, everyone knew they were guests working on God's land. But in no time at all, they ended up like people making payday shark loans. That's what happened. The script of slave and slave master would emerge unless they obeyed God's jubilee law. To ensure that no Jew would ever have to enter into perpetual slavery or inescapable financial depression, God makes this jubilee year. And so what exactly is a jubilee year? Let me just summarize this if this is a new concept to you. So in Israel, on the seventh day of every week, they had a Sabbath day. And Israel worshiped the Lord. Now, on the seventh year, they had a Sabbath year, this entire year. And Israel, that was so that Israel would give their land rest. On the sixth year, God would give this bumper crop, that's what you see in verse 21, to make sure that there was enough food for the following year, right? Kind of cut into profit margins, but they needed to trust God and not just all, be about all the money, Right? Well, after seven Sabbath years, right, seven times seven is 49, the following Day of Atonement, that's Leviticus 16, what we learned last week, they, that began the Jubilee year. And so that makes it every 50 years. The year of Jubilee is when God demanded that all debts be forgiven, all indentured servants free of their commitment, and all the land parcels be reset to how the land was originally divided by God. The land titles and the plots are actually carefully given in the book of Numbers. Y'all remember Numbers, the hard part to read? Yeah, it's all very specifically written there in the book of Numbers. God is building into the legislation of their society protections from perpetual financial depression or oppression. 
So even if you came on hard times, it would not last forever. At least your grandchildren would not have to suffer. Why? Because Jubilee was a reset button. Now listen, everyone suspend all of your capitalistic intuitions and think about like how stinking smart this is. It ensured that every Jewish person would get a complete second start over on life. It means that your children didn't have to reap the pain of the father's sin or misfortune. It put a light at the end of the tunnel that kept people working hard. But more importantly, it restrains man's natural tendency towards savage and purposeless accumulation, right? I mean, think about this with me. If we accumulate wealth with the profound purpose of employing it for God's glory, that's great, awesome, you should. But if you are accumulating for no other reason than to win the game of dying with the most amount of toys— We've got problems. You're relating to your stuff in a very sick way. But if you knew that every 50 years, it's all going to be taken away for you. It's going to revert back into the general population. If you knew that, wouldn't you live differently? I mean, wouldn't that like light a fire under you to live with like this deep intentionality? You would live like for the well-being of others. That's just how you understood life. Now, it might mean, it might mean that people, according to your judgment, who didn't earn it or don't deserve it, got an uncomfortable amount of grace at the 11th hour, right? But you'd only really say that if you were tempted to see yourself as an owner instead of a guest. Why? Why? Because, like, none of it is yours. Like, literally, when you look around in Israel, no one earned it. Like, no one worked for this. Man, you were a slave, helpless, and no one was on the way until God shows up. God God says, I literally rescued you through a sea by opening up the waters that you're going through. Like, God graciously gave them a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Like, they didn't do any of that. They were stuck. God gave it to them all. So there's this audacity for, this, uh, for a Jew to start acting like a gangster owner claiming his rights, you see. And so God's law ensured perpetual freedom by protecting against our natural greed. Now listen, this is really important for you guys to get, understand this side of God. Because if, if you don't, Christianity will have no teeth until you begin to really understand this. Christians have always had a preference for the poor. And Christians have always looked at their own wealth as a gift on loan from God. We are guests, not owners, inhabiting God's good world and his provision. And so we look around and we say, man, I don't deserve any of this stuff. God is more gracious to me than I deserve. And for Christians, like, this isn't just like this intellectual proposition. I mean, this is a deep soul, heart posture, right? It's a lens in which we imagine and understand reality. And so as we just interact with this strange jubilee legislation, we need to ask, we need to come to grips and ask the question, like, who am I? Like, really? Like, how do I relate to God? Am I a guest in his world? 
Or have I deceived myself into thinking that I've earned all this abundance that I have? Because freedom, listen to me, freedom starts with a correct self-understanding. Are you a guest or are you an owner? One gives rest, one's toxic. So Jubilee helped them to answer that question correctly. Now the next way that the Jubilee taught, and this is my second final point, the second way that Jubilee year taught Israel to be free was by sort of unmasking the nature, the true nature of slavery. So slavery, and listen very closely, slavery can come by both poverty or riches. Slavery can come from both poverty or riches. Now, even as I say that, some of you guys are super dialed into what I'm saying. You know, like you know all too well that riches can enslave just like poverty. Like sociologists have long documented the higher rates of mental disorders, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, and social alienation that comes from financial privilege. People of means are, are more likely to score lower on these so-called happiness indexes. I don't know how sociologists, you know, create these happiness indexes, but you get the idea here, right? Now, for me, my convincing came through a much more primitive medium. Uh, When Micah was about six years old, I thought it was time to teach him the classic game of Monopoly. Uh, Now, my son was not aware that the game is fueled by capitalistic savagery, right? He thought this is a nice opportunity for goodwill people to cooperate, build a nice neighborhood, nice houses and hotels that mutually benefit everyone. And uh, being aware of my son's naivete, I did what every good father would do. I crushed him. I got all the railroads and all the utilities. I, I, I got the deeds and titles, built hotels on boardwalk and park place, and I liked it so much. My boy was broke. I said, hey, Micah, give me the orange ones, the orange bills. And I said that a thousand times. That evening ended in tears. I mean, I won, but I can tell you in no uncertain terms, I lost. That night didn't end well. See, even in the silly, dumb game, one can see how winning and accumulating did not produce the flourishing and well-being of relationship that I hoped it would. God understands the futility of how we relate to our stuff and accumulation, this kind of thinking. See, Israel, they thought Egypt was the standard. They thought, it was, like, they didn't like being the slaves, but if they were the slave masters, it's kind of a good deal. They thought that was the standard. They thought if they could just be like Egypt, then they would be free. When they had servants, finally, they could be happy. There was a sinful temptation to think that having land and indentured servants was the key to happiness. They were tempted to to think that putting U-Hauls on the back of their hearses was what it means to be winning. Kids, if you don't understand what putting a U-Haul on the back of a hearse means, ask your parents tonight and explain that very sacred concept. 
But that, um, that's the beauty of this Jubilee system. The reset button was hit every 50 years, and it really forced the issue. You had to really think about things. Poverty enslaved people, and, and captives needed to be set free. And the children of these unfortunate farmers needed a chance to be free from that economic oppression. But listen, the winners of that game, they were really enslaved too. The Jubilee system created this hedge of protection to keep their hearts from enslavement. The 50-year reset button made you carefully rethink what you were trusting your wealth for. I mean, what, are you, what exactly are you hoping that your wealth is going to do for you? Like, how does this end? Because if you answer that question wrong, you're going to end up a slave, a slave riddled with anxiety, resentment, pathologically suspicious of everyone. You just think everyone wants something from you. In verse 23, the very last verse in our passage, God says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Do you hear that? That with me part? That's the key. In this life, the land, your wealth, is the Lord's. And we are guests with the Lord himself. What are you hoping that your wealth will give you? Whatever that is can only be supplied in a relationship with the God of this universe. Don't confuse God's stuff with God himself. The land, the wealth, that stuff will become a slave master without this jubilee rhythm of freedom. Wealth will only make you anxious and demand your, your never-resting vigilance to protect it. And even if you had what you think you want, you're still not going to have any security. Listen, oh goodness, Denverites. All of us, we study our whole lives so we can get this good job. We still need a rhythm of freedom to change our expectations on what we are trusting our wealth for. And do you know why? Because cancer doesn't care about your money. Because the drunk driver who takes out your daughter doesn't care about your money. Because a hurricane doesn't care about your money. Because an undertow at the beach pulling your loved one out and filling their lungs with salt water doesn't care about your money. Money can't give you the security that your heart desperately longs for. Only the God of the universe can do that. In the 17th century, Samuel Rutherford, he's a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, theologian, he, he wrote a letter to a grieving mother who lost her daughter. I'm just going to read a short section of this letter. Listen to these precious words. He says to her, he says, Remember of what 
age your daughter was, and that just so long was your lease of her. If she were 18 or 19, I know not, but sure I am, seeing her term was up and your lease run out, you can no more justly quarrel against your great superior for taking his own at his just term. Then a poor farmer can complain that his master taketh a portion of his own land to himself when his lease is expired. Indeed, that long loan of such a good daughter, an heir of grace, a member of Christ, deserves more thanks at your creditor's hand than that you should murmur when he craves his own. Everything, and I mean everything, is on loan to us, even like our children. Listen, Denver Prez. God wants you to be free. Reset button is good for both the rich and the poor. Poverty and riches both have the ability to enslave you. And so we gotta think about these dynamics. Now, for those of us here, we're like, we're not Israel. We don't have a Jubilee year, but we need a reset button. And I would like beg you, like, take time this week and like have a real honest self evaluation. I mean, like, but do this pay attention to your anxiety, pay attention to your fear, pay attention to your resentment. I mean, what are those things saying? What are they pointing to? What is the thing behind the thing, right? What is the thing behind the fear or, or the, the, the superiority complex? What's behind all of that that makes you act the way you do? What's behind it? What are, they, what are those things saying? Because those things deep in your heart cannot be solved by your wealth accumulation, And when you lean on your wealth to give you that security, then you are moving into slavery. You're admiring Egypt instead of resting in Christ. So slow down. Pay attention. Don't let these moments pass. Let the Spirit work. Let me conclude. Thank you for your attention with such a dense passage. One final thought. So this Jubilee year, it's instituted by God to teach Israel how to be free. First, it interrogates us and says, are you a guest? Or are you an owner? Like, how do you see yourself? And then it teaches us about the slimy nature of slavery. Both the rich and the poor can be slaved. And so we need God to just like make sure that we don't ask our wealth to be something that only God can be, right? So here's my final thought. This is crazy. Luke, or Leviticus 25. By all accounts, the Jubilee year that's instituted by God himself was never once practiced in Israel. Never once. Israel never did it. Like Jubilee never happened in the history of Israel. But then... 1,400 years after this legislation was given, Jesus comes along. In Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us that 
that, that Jesus like walks into this synagogue to teach, right? He, he picks up the Isaiah scroll. He goes down to Isaiah 61 and he quotes it, which is a reference to Jubilee legislation. And this is what he says. This is Jesus in a synagogue reading Isaiah 61, talking about the Jubilee year. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that with no commentary, he just says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says this. It's crazy. And so what do you think happened? Like, what do you think happened? Like, do you think people were just like, all the Jews are like, wow, it's awesome. Like, let's celebrate. Like, finally it's happening. It's not what happened. And they got mad. They got irate. They actually tried to push him off a cliff. He escaped for a little while. They eventually got him, and they hung him to a cross. Like, what's this all about? Jesus is the incarnate jubilee, the reset button. In him, our deepest freedom, what we were made for, in him it is realized. Freedom, you guys, ah, we are so confused about what freedom is. Freedom is not found in our ability to not choose Jesus. Freedom is in our enabled ability to choose him and to find deep soul rest in him. The whole narrative of Jesus is beautiful and perplexing. I mean, why did Jesus leave his throne? Why did he leave the wealth of heaven? Why did he leave the father's side to become a slave and to become a refugee? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know, but but he, he loves us. I mean, clearly he loves us. It's crazy, but he does. I mean, Jesus leaves heaven as a refugee so that, so that we would find ourselves as guests enjoying his infinite wealth in the father's home. Man, would you let Leviticus 25 do business with you? Let it interrogate you.